Бажаю здоров'я, шановні українці. Сьогодні у нас є хороші новини із передової, із дипломатичного фронту. Перше. Українська армія здійснює на півдні нашої країни доволі швидкий і потужний рух в рамках поточної оборонної операції. Від російського псевдореферендума звільнено вже десятки населених пунктів лише за цей тиждень. Це на Херсонщині, Харківщині, Луганщині і Донеччині разом. Владимир Путін's Russia may just be the first country in history to claim to be annexing another country's territory even as its own troops were simultaneously and hastily retreating from that very territory. That is exactly what happened over the past week when the Federation Council in Moscow formally passed legislation incorporating four occupied Ukrainian regions into Russia while Ukraine's armed forces were in the process of liberating large swaths of those territories at an impressive clip. And as Russia continues to suffer humiliating defeats in the battlefield and Putin faces unprecedented criticism on the home front, the Kremlin leader is appearing increasingly unhinged and is resorting to one of his favorite go-to tactics, attempts at nuclear blackmail. The war in Ukraine is entering a perilous and unpredictable new phase, but the good news is that I got two awesome guests who are going to help us all get smarter and unpack it all. So please stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from somewhere in the D.C. metro area is the one and only Angela Stent, a professor at Georgetown University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and author of the 2019 book Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, which has just been revised, updated, and re-released, so be sure to get your copy, I Got Mine. Angela also served in the US, U.S. State Department's Office of Policy Planning and the administrations of President Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. She was also National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia in the Bush administration and was a member of the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe's advisory panel. Welcome back to the vertical, Angela. I hope I didn't leave anything out of your very impressive resume. Good to have you back on. Great to be back on. Great, great to have you. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, a fellow at the Illiberalism Studies Program at the George Washington University, and an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome back to The Vertical, Maria. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I, I guess it's Georgetown Day on, on, on the Power Vertical <laughs> this week, so go Hoyas. Um, Angela, in the revised edition of Putin's World, you raised, you actually raised a question that's been on my mind for a while. You write the following. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Putin's obsession with historical Russian claims and grievances raises a far-reaching question. Is Russia the exception to the rule that all empires eventually disintegrate with the imperial power moving on and accepting a post-imperial role? Um, as I'm sure you and most listeners of this podcast knows, this year marks the centenary of the founding of the Soviet Union back in December 1922, something something uh, partially made possible by the Red Army's conquest of Ukraine and Belarus earlier that year. And in, as 2022 began, it looked like Putin was in the process of putting the old the old empire back together again, repeating a process that took place a century ago. He pulled off a de facto soft annexation of Belarus and seemed poised to subjugate Ukraine by force. 
But now I am left wondering whether 2022 just may mark the final stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union and by extension, the Russian Empire. So, Angela, with that long wind up on my part, <laughs> um, how would you address this very important question you raise in your book? Is Russia an exception to the rule of empires? Um, and what are the events of the past seven months? Tell us about this issue. So Putin obviously believes that Russia is an exception. He talks about Russian exceptionalism. That means a number of things. But one of them is, in his view, and he's restated in different ways, all of the lands uh, to Rome, many of the lands to Russia's west belong to Russia. He says, you know, when Peter the Great defeated the Swedes and took the Baltic states, those lands belong to us. And by the same token, Ukraine belongs to Russia, Belarus belongs to Russia, maybe northern Kazakhstan belongs to Russia. We could argue about that. Uh, and then more recently, uh, when he announced the annexation of these areas in Ukraine, which, of course, Russia doesn't fully control, he talked about Novorossiya, uh, the, you know, the 18th century idea that Catherine the Great uh, and Pachomkin had, which is the land. Lands, uh, uh, which are, you know, for much of part of, uh, of contemporary Ukraine, part of Moldova, etc. So in other words, there's this idea that Russia has a perpetual right to dominate its neighborhood and that those territories traditionally belong to Russia. And so he certainly would not be of the opinion that all empires in the end, you know, have to fade away and the, and the metropolitan country has to accept that. So I think we could partly see the conflict in Ukraine and you can make a lot of different analogies as if you like France and Algeria, uh, you know, the French empire breaking up and then the war in Algeria is a kind of last gasp. So in a more positive view of this, it would be that this really is the last gasp that Putin was never willing to accept the collapse of the Soviet Union. But if indeed Putin doesn't achieve his aims in Ukraine, that may force Russia finally to accept that it'll still be the largest country in the world, but it will no longer dominate its neighbors. Yeah, so we'll have one-sixth of the Earth's landmass, which apparently right. isn't enough for its rulers. <laughs> the thing that worries me, Angela, is we've been here before, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we haven't been here in 1918, but the, the, the world has been here before. Yeah. In 1918, empires broke up, right? It was the beginning of the mm -hmm. end of the British Empire, the end of the Austrian Empire, the, uh, the, end of the, the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. But the Russian Empire, which broke up and then reconstituted itself, lasted another 70 years. 91, we thought, all right, finally, the last empire in Europe is breaking up, and here we are again. I'm just wondering if, and it's probably not a fair question, but whether this is a cyclical story we're going to have to see over and over and over again, or if something really, really special is happening right now with the, with the Ukrainian performance in this war. Yeah, well, I mean, we could say this time it could be different. It could be really mm -hmm. different. It could be the end of the cycle. But unfortunately, if you look back at centuries of Russian history, uh, that cycle has never ended. And in fact, that 100 years ago, when the Soviet Union was, in fact, established, it was just a reestablishment of the Russian Empire. Right. It's just that they couldn't call it that. And that's why they they created the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, the thing that Putin complains about all the time. Right. It's Lenin's fault because they wanted to give the impression that these that, uh, uh, that a place like Ukraine had some self-determination. But in fact, it didn't as the Soviet Union yeah. consolidated itself. And I'm like yeah. wondering if this defeat will be enough to create that catharsis that we needed. You wanted to finish your point, Angela. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I think that will depend if there is a defeat, you know, how bad it is, what, what it's done to the economy. I think it'll be a lot of factors that we can't tell. But unfortunately, the mentality 
is not going to go away immediately. Um, and, you know, you can say there's still people in Britain and France of a certain age who long for the empire, but of course they've accepted that they can't have that empire anymore. So that would take time too for the mentality to change. Yeah, I know on the mentality, I definitely want to go to Maria and I see Maria smiling and she wants to say <laughs> something. But Maria, I mean, you, you're one of the most astute observers of Russian public opinion that I know. In fact, uh, most of what I know about the nuances of contemporary Russian opinion, public opinion, I've learned from you and from your, 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 your uh, in the work you've done with the Levada Center. Um, we all know that Putin's obsessed with this idea of restoring the Russian Empire, a process that begin, always begins with Ukraine, never ends with Ukraine. Um, we know the imperial idea has a lot of resonance in certain sections of the Russian public, but we also know, thanks to you and the folks at Levada, that a new post-Soviet, new post-Soviet generations are coming of age in Russia and have a very different view, different views than their parents. So I know you wanted to react to Angela, but I also want you to address this, Maria. Does Putin's imperial rhetoric resonate with the public, and particularly with the younger generations, or does he just appear to be a crazy old man obsessed with the past? <laughs> Uh, thank you, Brian. So first of all, I wanted to follow up on what Angela has said. And as a matter of fact, currently I'm working on uh, another paper with my co-author, Alexander Lanoshka from University of Waterloo. I like the name of what university, I think it's very relevant. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we actually show that Russia's revanchism may be fit into the history of other post-imperial revanchism of uh, the empires that collapsed after the First World War, precisely, Brian, as you mentioned. One of the key factors that did not happen to Russia and also to other countries that ended up, states that ended up being revanchist was the elite rotation. Uh, so Russia after Soviet Union, unfortunately, did not undergo serious elite change. Many, and in mm -hmm. the Security Council, 90 to 70 percent until today uh, are the elite members with direct uh, background in Soviet nomenclature. Uh, that is a factor that also helped them preserve the same ideas uh, whilst in power. And we see the early instances of revanchism since early 1990s amongst them. So if trace uh, what they were saying, even Yeltsin's closest advisors during uh, the, what we consider still relatively pro-Western liberal Russia. Uh, and of course, uh, particularly if you look at the alternative set of presidential contenders, apart from Putin, right? We actually see that these same ideas, the contestation against the West, reasserting Russia's influence over the post-Soviet space. And of course, Ukraine, uh, which really comes up early on, since early 1990s, uh, actually all these themes were there and we are tracing the same dynamic across other countries, like for example, post-World uh, post War One Hungary, mm -hmm. where a very similar dynamic took mm -hmm. place. So that is for our future <laughs> recommendations. Uh, if there's a chance, uh, we need to force and push the rotation among the elite ranks because the same people with the same preferences, once they hold on to power, eventually they start influencing right. the same policies. Yeah. Uh, having said that, the elites, as Brian said, right, they are different a little bit from the Russian society. Of course, there's no question that Russian society is highly brainwashed uh, by the Kremlin propaganda. And unfortunately, as we see, consistently follows the Kremlin's uh, direction. So this literally was the poll uh, just recently where um, Russians were asked, uh, President Putin said that he wants actually to go, get, uh, to go ahead and attack Kiev. Would you support that? Hypothetically, and then the other question asked: President Putin said that he actually wants to stop the war and start peaceful negotiations. Would you support that? 
And on both answers, majority of respondents support it. <laughs> so this is Russian society today. So is Russian society is confused. <laughs> is Russian society is highly complacent and conformist, right? Unfortunately, also brainwashed for all these years into militaristic propaganda. And of course, it also is uh, carrying with it the legacies of the Cold War. So of course, uh, this is there. So the, the ground is kind of prolific. Uh, is susceptible for these narratives. But within the Russian society, there is also different groups. Brian, as you said, of course, among the younger groups, uh, so the uh, people below 30 years old, consistently since the beginning of this war, uh, we saw there was, um, I would not call that the opposition to the war, mm. because they're still the product, the same society, they're still sort of still operating in the same information environment. Um, but they're still uh, way less supportive of the war than the older generation. And this divide, uh, which we have seen consistently over the years, right, we've seen it when the war began. So the 20, uh, 30 years old, uh, approximately right. 50 to 54 percent maybe embraced the war, as opposed to older groups where the support was like closer to 80 percent. Uh -huh. Now, however, the divide is even more pronounced after the uh, state, the Kremlin announced mobilization. So now the tables are completely turned. Among 60 years old and older, according to the Russia Field Survey that just came out earlier this week, uh, again, 80% are in support of mobilization, and among 18 to 26 years old, it's only 40%. Uh -huh. uh, so literally, uh, so the, 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 the gap is getting wider. Then, is the gap is getting wider, but it's also because uh, this is the self-interest involved, right? Who is going to be fighting? who's going to be mobilized and right. who's going to die in this war. Of course, it's not going to be yeah. the 60 plus year olds, right? It's right. going to be the younger ones. And unfortunately, yet again, mm -hmm. we see uh, that the older groups essentially sacrificing the future generations in, for the sake of their unfortunately highly right. outdated ideas. Uh, this is quite catastrophic uh, for the country's future. That, that's that's very interesting, and I want to dive deeper into this in the second half when we look at the domestic dynamics on this, Maria. That, 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 that's extremely interesting because I was wondering where public opinion was going and if we had anything longitudinal that was showing, and you, 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 just, you, you just answered my question. Um, what I want to turn to now, though, is something that's been on everybody's mind um, since Putin announced his mobilization, and indeed since the beginning of this war, his nuclear threats and how... Can, how can and how should Western policymakers handle uh, these? There is, is there a threat of what our, our friend and colleague Ben Hodges calls self-deterrence? Um, is there a fear of victory? Um, the fear that if Ukraine does too well, it'll provoke Putin into escalating and metastasizing the war. Um, Angela, it's one thing for me to talk about this, not never having, having had responsibility for the, for the policy. You were actually in the room when decisions are made. And how, as somebody who has, has operated at the, at the highest levels of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, how do you see this? How do we thread this needle? Because it is tricky. The, re the threat of nuclear escalation and, and the, the war metastasizing is real. I mean, and we, we really yeah. can't deny it. But we can't, if we self-deter... Uh, we're effectively sacrificing sacrificing Ukraine's sovereignty if we stop supporting them. How, how do you thread this needle in government? So, I mean, it's obviously very challenging. So you have to take the threat seriously uh, because Putin has reiterated in a number of different ways. Um, we do know that the Russians have a variety of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, and we do know that if you look at Russian military doctrine for the past few years, people have been writing about the fact that one way of ending a conventional war would be to use a tactical nuclear weapon. So it's there, if you like, in the theory. On the other hand, I think it's wrong to 
exaggerate the threat at the moment and as you say to self-deter because you already have voices saying oh no 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 now we have to tell the ukrainians you know to get to the negotiating table because we right. can't risk nuclear war um and so i think it's you, you have to maintain um uh, you know a rational uh, attitude towards that and i think what we're doing is more or less all we can do so we know from jake sullivan from other officials who've talked about this that the white house is in communication obviously with the Kremlin and has told them in no uncertain terms were they uh, to um, deploy a tactical nuclear weapon there would be very strong consequences clearly they won't go into the details about that but that's a message that's being sent um and uh and I think otherwise the feeling among most people I think who focus on these issues uh you know 24/7 is that what Putin is still trying to do is to wait and see whether this mobilization, which kind of looks botched to us, but even though about 200,000 Russians have left since it was announced, apparently they've already mobilized 200,000 Russians, right. ill-trained, ill-equipped. But waiting to see whether that mobilization eventually, when those soldiers are there, uh, will have an effect to, to uh, stop the Ukrainian advance. Then we have winter coming. You know, that will also be more complicated for the Ukrainians. And then, of course, Putin is also hoping that transatlantic uh, and transpacific solidarity on this is going to fade in the winter months, particularly Europeans with very high energy prices, uh, right. maybe lack of energy, all of that. So I think at the moment, you know, it looks as if he's waiting that out to see if the tide turns um, and, you know, he can get what he wants without deploying a tactical nuclear weapon. But having said all of that, you know, you can't um, pretend that that threat isn't real, that it doesn't exist. I could tell you all the rational reasons why it would make little sense to do this. Right. It doesn't get Russia any more territory. Uh, radiation fallout can affect Russia uh, just as much as it can Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, maintaining, uh, I think what the administration is doing, which is this kind of sober-minded attitude towards this, but not being overly hysterical is the right thing to do. So you, 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 you don't see any signs that this is having Putin's desired effect that we're going to self-deter, because that seems to be what he's trying to do. Right. I think it's having the opposite effect. I mean, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that support in Germany, right, which is already now facing fuel shortages and people People are taking shorter showers, they tell me. Support in Germany has gone up in the last two weeks. Um, as a, Partly as a result of these nuclear threats, the Germans are obviously very sensitive to that. And right. then, of course, the discovery of more atrocities that have been committed yeah. by the Russians. So right now, I do not think this is having the effect that Putin wants. But let's see what the new Italian government does. You know, let right. some of these other countries, Czechia, there have been opposition to having this tough policy toward Russia. So I think we still have to wait that out. And another thing that doesn't get nearly enough attention is the effect this would have on Sino-Russian relations. The Chinese are clearly uncomfortable with this, right. as are the Indians. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, Putin really risks losing not just China, but much of the global south in this. I, I saw a really good uh, piece by Timothy Snyder on his Substack mm -hmm. this week, where he was, it's, I don't know if any of you saw this piece about how the war ends. And he was making this argument, and he, he begins it by saying it's not going to end with a nuclear explosion. He writes, right now, yeah. though, we, though we have a, diff a certain difficulty seeing how Ukraine gets to victory, even as the Ukrainians advance, mm -hmm. this is because many of our imaginations are trapped by a 
single rather unlikely variant of how this war ends with a nuclear detonation. I think we're drawn to that this scenario in part because we seem to lack other variants and it feels like an ending, which I think is a is an interesting observation. Uh, Professor Snyder actually thinks the more likely scenario is that the war comes home, creates a power struggle in Russia, forcing Russia to withdraw yeah. from the war, which is a very, very positive uh, Optimistic. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, but I, I would say as well. I mean, one scenario for the war ending is that you do have a different person in charge in Russia. And yeah. Now, how we get how we get to that, we can debate, and it's tricky. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I said at the beginning yeah. of this war, we're either witnessing the end of Ukraine or the end of Putin. I don't think both of them will survive this yeah. war. Actually, Maria, turning to you, I mean, how 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 you 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 watch Putin? You 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 we you have some some strong opinions about how we should approach him. Um, you and I co-authored a piece about how Putin backs down more often than we seem to, than most people seem to think. Um, he bluffs and backs down a lot. How seriously should we take these threats? Do you? And of course, we can't get inside Putin's head. It's a, it's a dark, dark, scary place where you can't see anything without a flashlight. But how how how? What's your instinct? How seriously should we be taking these threats? Well, first of all, I would definitely echo uh, what uh, uh, Professor Stent has said about us. Of course, we need to take this threat seriously, right? It is an unprecedented situation. So, and Putin has already uh, resorted to all sorts of unprecedented steps, where which few people believed he would take. So that is a concern for sure. Right. Having said that, I'm also in the camp that should not uh, this consideration should not serve as a deterrence uh, for the West, uh, mostly because that uh, sort of um, deterrence only tends to empower. Uh, this autocross, okay. right? We already have seen that the lack of sufficient, sufficient response, I would argue, after Crimea, unfortunately, uh, provoked a further escalation, partly, right? This is the sort of people, personalities, they do not uh, stop. Uh, now, I also wanted to emphasize your point, Brian, about the role of China and India and non-Western countries in all this yeah. situation. Because for Putin to hold on to power, he needs to have some support, right? At least uh, sanctions evasion, right? Where is he still going to uh, sell the energy once the European embargo hits, right? All of that is important. And uh, even uh, with current, uh, I would say, very uh, little support that he's getting from non-Western countries, thanks to actually secondary sanctions, China, for example, has reduced uh, the supply export of high-tech technologies that the Russian army needs, and that is the credit of the Western sanctions policies, I think. Uh, already, right now, he's in trouble. Uh, a lot of military experts report that he's facing shortages when it comes to necessary uh, artillery and whatnot. So where is he going to get all that? And in, in case he uses the nukes, he is likely to find himself in the complete isolation, uh, even uh, with his countries. So there, I don't just see a long-term strategic benefit for him if he were to use that. Uh, that's the first consideration. Second, watching Putin, uh, he actually takes a while, usually, to take these major decisions. If you look at how mobilization uh, yeah. was um, uh, actually how this decision was made. Uh, the military experts, both in Russia and outside of Russia, have been consistently repeating since this spring that without mobilization, Russia is unable to sustain this war uh, uh, for a certain duration, even for a longer period, right? Not, not, not even mentioning winning. He, however, oscillated all the way until Russia suffered uh, a big defeat under Kharkiv, and only then did he right. finally yeah. announce this highly unpopular um, uh, uh, step. So that suggests to me that when it comes to the nukes, he is going to also take a while, right? Certainly, I don't think not happening anytime soon if this decision was to be uh, made. And that's hopefully good news uh, for us. 
the last point I want to make with regards to this article, indeed, as we show with you, Brian, uh, there are multiple instances <laughs> when Putin actually backs down, uh, when uh, directly, when, for example, Russian uh, military Wagner uh, group clashed uh, directly, not only with Turkish army, mm -hmm. but even with the U.S. army. Mm -hmm. Even then in Syria, uh, Russia was actually um, able to retreat quite easily despite all these threats. So that happens very often. Uh, we discuss those instances uh, in foreign policy, and hopefully that's good news for all of us Russia watchers. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this what, this what this discussion really hinges on right now is how rational is Putin at the moment, and we just don't know. Right. We just right. don't know. He seems like just watching him. He, he seems a little unhinged. He seems different. It's not the calm, cool and collected Putin. We've kind of come to come come to uh, get used to over these years. Angela, you've been watching this man's career for a long time. I You're see welcome. something <laughs> different. Do you? I do. I mean, I think before COVID hit, one could say that he was pragmatic and he didn't take huge risks, right? In 2008, they could have gone to Tbilisi and removed Saakashvili from power. They mm -hmm. didn't. You know, they took the two uh, uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, you know, and occupied them and then they left. And even in 2014, yes, they took Crimea easily. Uh, and then they started the war in the Donbass, but then they did, you know, sign a ceasefire. And even though there were casualties, it was becoming a frozen conflict. And now he seems to have lost that kind of sense of, uh, you know, when you start to take too many risks. And I think a lot of people believe he was isolated for two years during COVID. He was only talking to people, a few people who obviously shared his views and were kind of egging him on. And so I think we can maybe somewhat be less um, cautious or, or less convinced that he still has that pragmatic streak. Now, when I watched him, you know, I watched the speech carefully, as I'm sure you mm -hmm. both did, that he gave uh, last Friday announcing the annexation, and he exudes self-confidence, right? He didn't stand there looking like a madman. However, when you came to the evening uh, when they had the concert and he wanted everyone to yell hoorah, then you really look at his face and he does look, uh, you know, not quite in complete control of, of all of his senses. So I think, and, and maybe it's deliberate. He wants people to feel intimidated yeah. uh, and feel that, you know, hey, we better be careful in what we do because who knows what Putin's going to do next. Um, but it is, it's it's a puzzle. I mean, if you think about what he's done with this unprovoked invasion, he is going to leave Russia poorer, more isolated globally. I mean, deglobalized, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lost these contacts with the West. Uh, and, and these you know, after effects will be there for a long time. You know, he turns 70 tomorrow. Is that the yep. legacy that he wants to leave to his country? I keep asking myself that. Yeah, yeah no, and if you look at it from a sense, you know, from a point of view of rationality, yeah, this does, right. this is this is madness. But there seems mm -hmm. to be in Putin this sense of urgency now regarding Ukraine. Angela, you said correctly back in 2014, he was content to play the long game. He was content to freeze the conflict in the Donbass, confident mm -hmm. that over the long haul he could wear Ukraine down and wear the West down. And there was no hurry. Um, he thought he was winning. Now, suddenly this year, there was this sense of urgency. Part of that is Ukraine was quickly moving to the West. Um, they mm -hmm. were doing things. They they but they put Medvedchuk under house arrest. Uh, yeah. the, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church got autocephaly. You had all these things happening uh, one after another that was moving Ukraine closer to the West. Mm -hmm. um, and he felt this sense of urgency that I, I guess he felt like he had to act 
now or he was going to lose Ukraine forever. And one thing we've learned through this is how important and how central and how existential Putin views Mm -hmm. Ukraine in this. Maria, what are are your thoughts on this issue of Putin's rationality and state of mind? Uh, Yeah, of course, uh, hard to read (laughs) Putin's mind, not making that claim. Um, Having said that, by the way, on the Ukraine point, on on Ukraine's point, uh, since early 1990s, Ukraine is really uh, the issue that's highly, highly important for the Russian elites. Uh, be it maybe its historical importance for Russian culture or this belief that there is no Russian empire without Ukraine, but you really see this elite continuity, which is quite pronounced. Like, yes. And you really start feeling sorry for Ukraine after having you know, read that, because it's really unfortunate uh, that the country is such a big obsession uh, for the Russian elite. Uh, having said that, uh, on Putin's rationality, it's true that he has changed, I agree. Um, it like the way he behaves and what he says. Having said that, so far, what we get to see, observe uh, on the outside, right, are Putin's actions. And those, at least within this limited short-term time frame, still appear quite rational. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, the whole uh, the whole big misstep of trying to invade uh, Ukraine in several days, as now appears, was actually quite... Uh, he was misled. He probably did not have the right information. But so actually was the the U.S. intel, which early mm-hmm. on was reporting mm-hmm. that he was to be taken in a couple of uh, days or maybe weeks. So um, there actually both sides made uh, a lot of mistakes. It's Ukraine that ended up being uh, victorious mm-hmm. and uh, courageous. And but what did you see afterwards? Once the uh, Putin, once Putin and the Kremlin realized that they were not going to take Ukraine, uh, oh sorry, not going to take Kiev, right? They did not use the news. Instead, they backed down actually quite dramatically and reoriented completely to mm-hmm. what was doable to them, what was achievable, south and east, right? Same story with mobilization, pretty much. Uh, when they realized they uh, they don't have enough resources now, right? They actually backed down from Kharkiv. Again, no nukes have been used. And uh, what they're currently doing, they're using quite conventional means, uh, highly suggested by all of the military experts on both sides of this war, since the start, right, they're mobilizing uh, the society and uh, sending more Russians to fight. Again, maybe this is not going to end up delivering, uh, but even until uh, then, between now and the nukes, as Angela said, Putin has a set of toolkits at his disposal to use, uh, and so far he's able, it appears, at least from the actions, that those are quite uh, rational so far. Mobilization, some people said, will be highly unpopular, that, that's a suicide for Putin. He's shooting himself into, into a foot. Having said that, uh, it's possible that us, the analysts, maybe overstated the, the degree of mm. protest that the Russian mm-hmm. society has. Instead, yeah. what we see is that, yes, the uh, polls are dropping, but nonetheless, again, Angela has mentioned that Putin is successfully mobilizing yeah. a lot of people, even if many are fleeing. And one more last point, again, some people suggested that he was going to close borders. Uh, but he's not closing the borders, yeah, uh, allowing the protest-minded mm-hmm. uh, people to mm-hmm. leave, right, to avoid accumulation of this protest inside of the country, while at the same time still apparently meeting some of the early right. mobilization. Yeah, yeah. All of that seems to be quite rational to me so far, right? Having yeah. 
while mm -hmm. I agree with everything that's been said about his mental state, so far, he does not look ridiculously crazy. I mean, yeah, it's kind of bounded rationality, if you will. I mean, leaving this <laughs> question of rationality aside, it's he was one thing we could be reasonably certain about is he was high on his own supply. I mean, he really did believe yeah. his own hype. He believed yeah. just because Ukrainians, some of the Ukrainians speak Russian, that they're going to be pro Moscow. Right. I lived in Ukraine long enough to say that is not that is most definitely not true. Yeah. Go ahead, Maria. If I could quickly jump in, yeah, what actually what concerns me though, having said everything else, um, actually was I was really worried that they don't up update their priors. You would think that after 2014, when they right. already tried all of this, right? They'd really try to yeah. in um, yeah. inflame this uh, southeastern uh, shoreline of Ukraine, uh, right? We know that they actually wanted to uh, actually stage those insurgencies, not just in Donbass and Donbass and Luhansk, but also yeah, the, the across exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but that did not happen, and you would think that they would realize that because the Russian ideas yeah. were not popular there, yet they will instead they will just double down on the same ideas now instead, instead of soft power, essentially using hard power. This is definitely concerning, right? That they don't show a lot mm -hmm. of ability to update their priors. To learn. Yeah. yeah, no, for a, for a country that they think yeah. is a brother, a brother nation, they, they certainly <laughs> don't seem to understand it very well, which really? is remarkable. Yeah. Do you have something you wanted to add, yeah. Angela? Well, just that I think, I mean, I think we now know that the intelligence Putin was getting from the special FSB unit and others about Ukraine was obviously wrong. And maybe they're so blinded by their own prejudices that right. they failed to understand what was really going on there, which, you know, the much vaunted intelligence services of Russia, there clearly are, are some problems there. Uh, and so he, you know, he did not believe that the Ukrainians wouldn't welcome Russians with open arms. Um, so I just wanted to add one other thing, which I think is an interesting data point. Um, in uh, Last week, we had a, a symposium at Georgetown in memory of Madeleine Albright, and President Bill Clinton spoke there. And one of the things he said was that in 2010, he had a meeting with Vladimir Putin, and Putin said to him, uh, you know, I don't feel bound by any of these things like the Budapest Memorandum or, you know, the treaty that Yeltsin signed with Ukraine. Uh, those things, uh, you know, don't affect me anymore. And basically told Clinton, you know, the, what his views were on Ukraine. So he has, yes, nurtured this for a long time and apparently wasn't shy about telling other, in this case, former presidents uh, what right. was on his mind. That's interesting. He probably assumed yeah. that that was going to get to the rest of the American foreign policy establishment. <laughs> Angela, before I move into the second half, I did, since your book was yeah. reissued uh, very recently, just last month, I wonder, what, what, what was the main thing you, you felt you needed to update and revise there? You published that back in 2019, right before the, all this happens, just for our listeners right. and to give it a plug. Uh, what did, <laughs> how, did, how did you, what did you feel you needed to update? Oh, I needed to update on the Russia-Ukraine war. Mm. I mean, a lot of what I had in the book, I think, foreshadowed what happened, but I didn't mm. foresee that there would be a full-scale invasion. I don't think too many people did. So I, I do have a chapter, you know, explaining why, in my view, uh, Putin invaded when he invaded, uh, and then talking about the course of the war and, you know, the possible options for the future. And, of course, the challenge of writing anything like that is, as we've all been saying, we don't know how this ends, exactly. but you have to start thinking about how it might end. So that, that's what's yeah, as somebody who's in the middle of writing a book right now, I could sympathize with you. And I did read that chapter in preparation for this podcast, but I wanted to give you a chance to plug it yourself. Okay. Um, and that book is out in a new ebook edition. E right. um, and everybody should get their copy. I got mine. Um, you know, that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and take a look at Putin's war at home, where he is facing criticism from hawks on the right and opposition from anti-war forces on his left. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University 
University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from somewhere in the D.C. metro area is Angela Stent, a professor at Georgetown University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and author of the 2019 book Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, which has just been revised, updated, and re-released, so be sure to get your copy, I Got Mine. Also joining us from D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Buddy Asnagabaya, a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, a fellow at the Illiberalism Studies Program at the George Washington University, and an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Her podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. <laughs> you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоном вас с новым веком. So Kremlin insiders like Yevgeny Prigozhin and Ramzan Kadyrov have issued blistering public condemnations of Russia's high command and by implication of Putin himself for their losses on the battlefield. Kirill Stremosov, a Russian-installed occupation official in eastern Ukraine, said that Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu should, should consider shooting himself because of the Russian army's failures in Ukraine. Military bloggers and commentators on state television continue to criticize the conduct of the war. And meanwhile, hundreds of thousands, if not up to one million, according to one estimate I saw, of draft-age Russian men are voting with their feet, leaving the country in droves, attempting to escape Putin. Putin's mass mobilization. Putin's war is coming home as the Kremlin leader finds himself caught between a hawkish right and an anti-war left, and with the elite appearing to be fracturing. Maria, the million-dollar question, how much trouble is Putin in this time? We've all made the mistake in the past of thinking this regime was back on its heels, only to see it prove, prove remarkably resistant and come roaring back. Do we have any reason to think this time is any different? Well, this time, uh, Putin's regime definitely uh, faces by far the major challenge, probably throughout its 20-year rule. So that is that. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Putin is losing this war. It's not at all going according to the original plan. And you see the hustle, you see uh, the readjustment uh, taking place, and many of the decisions that are being made, they're highly socially popular. We mentioned mobilization before. Uh, those uh, and even those un social unpopular decisions uh, do not really necessarily mean a victory. Uh, just to give you the sense of the scale, after mobilization so was announced, uh, we saw a radical drop in the social mood uh, in the last week. Uh, so even a fairly pro-Kremlin uh, form, yes. uh, Polster reports a radical decline in uh, perception of uh, the mood. Uh, from going from 57 to 26, and mm. the negative perception uh, by skyrocketed from 35 to 69. 
so negative. So this is a general uh, poll about the mood in the like how the mood. like uh, right track wrong yeah. track kind of in, in the American. In your opinion, mm-hmm. what's what's the dominating mood among your friends, relatives, uh, gotcha. colleagues, gotcha. acquaintances? Mm-hmm. And similar dynamic uh, is shown by Lovato Center. It's a little bit less pronounced and less radical. I think in this sense, form is more important because it's generally more pro Kremlin. Uh, so it's, it's usually soften the blow, right? But there you see actually a radical, radical, uh, almost Jesus-like uh, mm-hmm. behavior. Interesting. In and that's, and that's just a fong. That's fong. That's not. That's, that's not Lovato. Yeah. That's exactly. That's a generally pro Kremlin mm-hmm. uh, poster. So that is significant, and that's just one week in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really just yet seen uh, what's going to happen to these uh, mobilized troops that are fully equipped. Uh, have to get their own clothes, right? They they're not provided adequate uh, weapons, and they're not trained at all, and they're facing a largely motivated at this point, experienced, right, brave, courageous, uh, our Ukrainian army on the other side that's also using uh, Western uh, weapons. Uh, so this is unlikely to fundamentally alter the dynamic of this war. Uh, the best Putin can probably hope at this point is to hold on to the territories uh, mm-hmm. that he already got, but mm-hmm. this, even that is unlikely. Uh, we'll see where this is all going. Uh, so in the Russian society, of course, uh, eventually this dynamic should come back and uh, even further undermine uh, the uh, essentially social um, um, mood, so to speak. So since the start, since the start of the war, you saw one particular trend in the Russian society. Uh, everybody tried to make uh, to pretend nothing happened. Like mm. people who traveled mm-hmm. to Moscow, they reported that. Life just continues as usual. People are discussing, I don't know, their travel plans, their their shopping plans. <laughs> Nothing's happening. So it wasn't certain... a war. It was a movie about a war. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's always closed. It says, I'm sorry, we're gone. It never mentions why, right? If it's, especially if it's a Western store, if it's a Western company. Uh, so things are normal. So it's for the first time in this war, in late September, we saw that things no, uh, people no longer can pretend things are all right. Uh, okay, so this is now uh, comes to really directly comes into every single family. Unfortunately, the Russian society responds not by trying to counter uh, that, right? Not by mobilizing or organizing. Unfortunately, it seems like it's totally lacks this capacity. But by either fleeing, uh, we see the huge numbers of immigration from Russia going on, uh, several hundred thousands of people left, or by complying. Uh, but even complacency is not going to probably last once they realize the degree of uh, uh, catastrophe that's unraveling. Uh, the most likely comparison, I think, at this point is Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Except that it's going to be an accelerated Afghanistan in the sense that it's unlikely that Russia has the capacity to fight this war uh, the way it's going ten years, right. for 10 years. Uh, so we're going to see. At the same time, at the same time, I'd say, unfortunately, over the last 20 years, as we now real- come to realize, the Russian society has been heavily demobilized and also brainwashed uh, by the Kremlin, and uh, most of their active resistant people were uh, either put in jail or fled. So unfortunately, when it comes to mechanisms of change, right, there's not a lot of them left. Uh, the elites also proved to be completely unable to essentially limit or constrain Putin's behavior as of now. So I say it will have to be much, much worse uh, from Russia domestically until we were able to see some sort of change. Well, yeah, let's yeah. let's yeah. drill down on the elites with you, Angela, because I, I've I've been saying, and this all this is the truth. I mean, truth in advertising here. This came from a conversation Maria and I had with Michael Kaufman months back, actually. But I I see Putin in what I call the Gorbachev dilemma. 
um, per mm -hmm. perversely so. Um, if you think back to the late 80s, Gorbachev effectively was caught between two camps, neither of which he could mm -hmm. please, right? He had hardliners right. to his right who wanted the Soviet Union back, radical Democrats to, the, to his left who wanted the whole thing broken. And Gorbachev was trying to preserve something that nobody really wanted to preserve in the form he was wanting to preserve it. Putin's in a similar state. Um, the hawks to his right want the military parade on the Kashatik and the complete subjugation of Ukraine and the restoration of the Soviet Union. Uh, that ain't happening, clearly. Uh, and then you got, uh, you know, the, the anti-war critics to his left. And I, I'm speaking about the elite here, not not so much the uh, the, the population. Um, they want to go back to the pre-February 24th status quo ante so they can go back to stealing and having their vacations in the south of France. That ain't happening. So Putin's in a position <laughs> where he's pleasing exactly nobody. How much trouble do you see him in? So I definitely think that Putin's position is weaker now than it was on February the 23rd. I agree with Maria. I think this is the biggest challenge uh, to his presidency, you know, in the past 22 years. Um, you know, one reason I want to come back to this now, why is he keeping the borders open? Because he mm -hmm. doesn't want revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason he didn't mobilize before, again, because he knew there'd be opposition. There is opposition. But as long as people can leave, you're not going to have a popular revolution. So at, for the time being, um, I agree with everything. Maria said, you know, you're not, I mean, there's discontent, but A, you don't have a leader. Uh, you know, if we're going back to 1917, <laughs> you right. don't have the Bolsheviks. Uh, Navalny's in prison. And of course, there are other people who are opponents, but most of those people aren't in Russia anymore. Um, right. They've left. You know, they're either in jail or they've left. So that, I think that's why he keeps that open. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the elite in many ways, as Maria said, they tried to sort of pretend that it wasn't happening. I think the, the oligarchs, the really wealthy ones, they just had to accept the fact that they lost their yachts and everything else. You know, it was a misconception in this country and in other countries to think that if you sanction them, they're going to get together and get rid of Putin. That's not how the Russian yeah, system but... works. They don't have that kind of power. And Putin really could care less what happens to them and whether they lose their yachts. And so they've just, you know, Alexander Lebedev, you know, former KGB and oligarch said, we don't have any choice. This is what's happening and we, right. and we have to support it. But I agree with you that Putin has put himself in a pretty untenable position at the moment. Um, I think what could happen is, and this could change the dynamics, when the sanctions hit more fully next year, that is to say all of the export controls, the lack of access to um, uh, semiconductors, components, they're going to—they're already unable to manufacture certain things, automobiles, right. other things, because they don't have the spare parts. Once you start closing down factories and things like that, and you really don't, you know, they can't even repair the aerofrot planes anymore because they lack things, then that is going to be felt by more people in Russia, and that could possibly put more pressure on him. Uh, the issue is, you know, what happens to that group of the elites? And we could say even Prime Minister Mishustin is sort of an example of that, the kind of technocrat pragmatic here. They're now doing everything, you know, they're doing everything they can to save the economy, but they weren't told that this war was going to happen. Right. And um, they don't necessarily support it. If you have enough people in the elite, and they're going to be a little younger than Putin and his cohort, they're going to be in their 50s, maybe early 60s. And they say, look, you know, we don't want Russia to demodernize. It's already deglobalizing. We want to have a prosperous Russia. Uh, you know, we want to benefit from that financially too. And maybe we should have a less 
conflictual relationship with the West. I mean, the kind of thing that Alexei Kudrin said at the beginning of this war, and now he isn't talking about it anymore, and he's doing his own deals. But that could be a source uh, uh, within the elite of a group that wants something different, not that they're not patriotic and things like that, but they, right. they understand um, the, you know, the danger that Putin has actually put Russia in. But yeah. unfortunately, we, you know, we aren't there yet either. And I think the challenge for all of us is to think about how you translate these concerns and these views to something actually changing um, in the war there. And then I would come back to the fact that you really would have to have, and some people believe this could happen, enough people in the highest echelons of the elite to decide, and the, I'm not talking about the oligarchs, I'm talking about the people right. who are around Putin saying, we this has to be different and hopefully not different, you know, that we then use nuclear weapons. But even that is very tricky to see how that happens. And, you know, we have to recall when Nikita Khrushchev was removed, there were institutions. There was a Politburo. Right. There was a Central Committee. Exactly. There was exactly. a process. They voted him out. He had to accept it. There are no such institutions in yeah. Russia now. It's all so highly personalized. And that is what makes it more difficult, too. Yeah, no, this is the irony. Now, the Soviet Union yeah. actually had stronger institutions than the, yeah. than the Russian Federation. What I seem to be hearing from both of you, though, is, Angela, as you very cogently pointed out, the threat from the anti-war faction, whether it's in the elite or the, is a long-term threat as the sanctions begin to bite. It's not an immediate yeah. threat. The immediate mm -hmm. threat right now yeah. appears to be from the right. It, appear, it appears to be from those that think that, 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 that Russia's not being hawkish enough, right. uh, that the war is not being pro prosecuted uh, well enough. Um, is that, I mean, do, is there a real threat from the right? Does that, does Putin face a true threat to his rule from his right flank? I think it's more or less uh, similar when it comes to the elites of both types, since they're all uh, atomized, uh, highly scared. Uh, both groups are atomized, mm. scared. Uh, they lack collective action mechanisms, and Angela has pointed out, and that is what insulates Putin from them. Having said that, from the start, the regime actually was always more concerned about nationalists. You would see that mm. those were the groups where the regime, uh, which the regime immediately went after. Uh, in early uh, 2000, so all these uh, extreme nationalists were immediately uh, crushed. And they on, and on or co-opted. Or co-opted. Or co-opted. Mm -hmm. Only then were the liberals, uh, sort of, did the liberals undergo the same fate. <laughs> so from that perspective, uh, these are at least some groups that are able to mobilize somewhat. Uh, I think right now, also they're, what they're saying uh, is also a reflection of the general belief that Russia can still will, win this war, right? There's mm -hmm. no total general understanding that this is, um, this is a, a, a failure, which I think there is in the West, generally. Uh, last but not the least, I wanted to draw attention that there's actually a little bit of a feedback mechanism going on there, right? So the Putin's mm -hmm. regime is not as completely insulated from uh, feedback. You, you see that uh, the way it works right now is that at the bottom, multiple groups, I don't know, maybe less so Girkin, but more of this radical... Right so-called quote-unquote patriots, start, you know, saying that this is not right, this is not going the way it should be. Margarita Simonian yep. uh, also joins <laughs> yeah. in, right? And all of them create this chorus, the choir, uh, mm -hmm. including on state TV channels, which yeah, after know, a while which is gets remarkable. the Kremlin. I mean, 
Yeah. And the crown responds eventually. So in some ways we see, I wouldn't call that checks, <laughs> uh, checks and balances <laughs> mechanism, but by mm -hmm. sort of mechanisms of feedback on which the crown relies to adjust its actions. And we see that in some instances it does respond uh, to that uh, to that feedback. Well, Maria, stick yeah. in with that for just a moment. What, what, when you see what we're seeing on Russian state television, which quite frankly is pretty jaw-dropping, um, and our assumption had always been that anything that appears in Russian state television was staged and approved. Um, and this leaves me with this question, is this Pakazuka or is this, is this real? And I'm beginning to think it's real. And so what do you see happening there? Because what we see on the airwaves, I like both of you to weigh in on this, is not what we're used to seeing on the airwaves. Well, that's why it's not fully a totalitarian regime. That's right. Uh, I, uh, that's why I don't agree when Russia is described as a totalitarian. It's actually in a definitely an autocratic uh, right regime, but it does allow a, a little bit of flexibility. You know, otherwise it would probably not have lasted for so long, right? It needs some sort of feedback. So I, the way I see that, I never worked on propaganda TV channels, thankfully. Uh, they, they they communicated certain information, right? That they, in some instances, are supposed to communicate. They certainly have those guidelines, right? But at the same time, there's also an element of flexibility where they can discuss certain issues, especially when um, perhaps uh, those are also meant to communicate certain certain ideas to the top. So they, right. they might be a reflection of different considerations of the elite groups. Maybe there are also the elites who are not very happy with what's going on. But the key point is that this is an adjustment mechanism. It's a very mm -hmm. adjustment and undervalued mechanism within the system. We saw that in the past, like when, for example, the regime would do something else that was not popular, such as raising uh, the retirement age, uh, right? You'd also see some feedback unraveling there on those, during those shows, and it will be communicated to the mm, top, okay. and maybe there will be some adjustments as a result. That's I mean, the way I see it. That's one way, to, that, that, that's certainly plausible to me. The other thing I see, and I, I'm looking at this the same way I'm looking at this, uh, these mysterious deaths of these, of these businessmen who were falling out of windows at an alarming rate. Um, my interpretation of that is that Putin's main role in the system has been the arbiter among the clans. And when Putin is weakened uh -huh. and is unable to be an arbiter, they start fighting. And this manifests yeah. itself in all sorts yeah. of different ways, mysterious deaths and strange things popping up on Russian state television. Angela, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I have to assume that, you know, when Vladimir Solovyov says, let's take some of the generals and shoot them, uh, you know, or Margarita Semenya, et cetera, et cetera, that they understand that they're allowed to say that. But that mm -hmm. may be because they don't, because the, the, the manual control over this from the very top maybe is somewhat uh, weaker than it was before. But you do note, I mean, a couple of times they've had people recently on these shows who've sung a different tune and said, well, maybe it's time to sit down and negotiate. And they're usually kind of booed off. Off. So mm -hmm. it is a little worrying that what you're really hearing is really only the people who say, yeah, you, we've got a Newcomb, you know, it's either right. or for precaution, um, or we've got to shoot the generals. As you say, they never completely, they don't directly criticize Putin, but it's clearly implied. And that does give me some pause for concern. If that's the group of people uh, that is allowed on the airwaves to see, say these outrageous things, what does that mean? Um, or are they just also trying to intimidate or remind Putin and the people around him uh, that, you know, things could be differently too, and they should be careful about what they're doing. So yes, it, it, it is some part of it, I think, an inter-elite struggle in this very, um, 
you know, obscure system. Right. And the frustrating thing was in the contrast to just a few years ago, people like us have very little visibility yeah. into what's going on there. There was a time when oh, we could, yeah. people would talk to us and we could figure stuff out. Those days are are long gone. Right. But when I see, <laughs> when I see Hadirov and Priyozin coming out and saying that the defense, you mm -hmm. know, that the criticizing the, the, the high military command, these are, I would, uh, interestingly enough, two people who control their own armies, if you will, yeah. um, the Wagner group and the, and the Kadyrov, see? So, um, so, the, so I, I found that uh, very telling and, and probably a sign of an elite split. I'm getting the five minute warning here. I'm, I'm kind of I'm very mindful of the clock. My, my production team will probably give, put sanctions on me if I, if I go too much longer, <laughs> so we're bumping up against the end. Maria, Angela, any last thoughts before we wrap it up for this week? I wanted to say that unfortunately, uh, it seems that Russian elites and the Russian society so far have proved incapable of constraining in any way uh, Putin's discretion. Unfortunately, I think it's a major failure on the on this part of Russia's political system, right? Russian society, Russian elites, and coming back to uh, the nuclear threats. Unfortunately, what it shows to me that uh, when things come to show, if this was a real threat, right, coming from Putin, I am not sure. Unfortunately, there will be some checks and balances on his ability to use the nukes. This is something I think we need this to is, keep in mind. This is something yeah. I'd like yeah. to see yeah. some scholarly research on because I yeah. don't know how the process of launching a nuke works in Russia. Putin doesn't just get to put, push a red button. It's got to go through. <laughs> there, there, it has to be implemented. And there, the, this involves other people. Angela, you might have some thoughts. On okay. That. So what I want to tell you is if we're talking about strategic intercontinental ballistic missiles, we have a very good idea of that chain. Because yeah. after all, we've had the New START treaty. We've been inspecting each other's weapons. We still have that treaty. We understand that. My concern is that we understand much less about is there a process if you're going to use a tactical nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. We don't even know. We know that the Russians have a lot of different tactical nuclear weapons, um, but we don't know enough about whether there's in fact a chain of command there. Uh, mm -hmm. We assume that, you know, Putin can't just push the button by himself and somebody else has to sign off on it. We could then get into a discussion of would anybody countermand him? But I think that's something that does give people um, cause yeah. for concern. And I would just say the last thing I'd want to say is as someone who's been looking at Russia for decades, we all know that sometimes we don't anticipate what happens. We can be surprised by what mm -hmm. happens in Russia. And so we do have, I think, problems thinking about how all this ends, but we may wake up tomorrow or in two weeks or two months and be surprised uh, by what yes. in fact has happened and how it does end. No, a very good point, Angela. If there's <laughs> one thing studying Russia should 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 teach us is that we need to have a lot of epistemological modesty um, in approaching this subject matter. And on that happy note, I'll wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident Senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from somewhere in the D.C. metro area has been the one and only Angela Stent, a professor at Georgetown University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and author of the 2019 book Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, which has just been revised, updated, and reissued as an e-book. Please be sure to get your copy. I got mine. Angela, of course, also served in the U.S. State Department's Office of Policy Planning in the administrations of Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. She was also National Intelligence 
officer for Russia and Eurasia in the Bush administration and was a member of the Supreme Allied Commander and Europe's advisory panel. And joining us from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Buddy Asnegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, a fellow at the Illiberalism Studies Program at the George Washington University and an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Vegas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. <laughs>